This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, October 15th, 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. When NSA officials speak about the relevance of data to an investigation, they don't mean it the way the police or the FBI would mean it. And that's a problem for your rights. Julian Sanchez, a research fellow at the Cato Institute, comments on the NSA's continued wordplay. Traditionally, there's a reasonably broad but not unlimited authority in ordinary criminal investigations uh, to subpoena records that are relevant to whatever the government is looking into. And that's understood somewhat broadly, but not in an unlimited way. Uh, it's understood to mean records that have something to do with uh, the specific investigation. It's not understood to mean uh, we want to get all the records that are out there and then sift through them to see if we can find something suspicious in them. That is the definition of a fishing expedition. And the government is arguing now they recently uh, submitted their motion in reply to uh, a lawsuit brought by the Electronic Privacy Information Center uh, trying to argue that relevant to an investigation means anything that is relevant to a process that can be used to facilitate the investigation. And so by getting all the records to analyze, uh, they, they are able to make all the records relevant uh, because they claim they need uh, the whole database to be able to do this. Now, that's actually not clear at all. The courts, the FISA court that approves in secret these orders uh, seems to have bought this claim of necessity without much scrutiny. Uh, but the question is, well, necessary for what? It's obvious that the government can often uh, make connections between terrorists and identify them without uh, this kind of massive database. Uh, and the record of actual success with this database is incredibly thin. So it, it's not really clear at all that it is necessary or that, uh, or that in fact they're even doing the kind of analysis that would require an entire database. If you were trying to do pattern analysis, if you were saying, trying to say, well, we have the profile of what a terrorist network's phone communications look like and we're sifting through everything to find matches to that pattern, then you could argue, well, we need the whole database to do that. We're looking for unknown numbers. But from what they've said publicly, that's not how this works. The way this actually works is that they start always with known numbers and then they go several hops out from that and end up sweeping in a lot of innocent people's records. Um, but if you're starting with suspicious numbers, you don't need the whole database. You can go to the phone carriers with, uh, with an order for those numbers and say, these are the numbers we want to be updated on. We want the historical records pertaining to these numbers. We want uh, to flag these numbers for the future so we get real-time updates on who's calling them and who they're calling. Uh, but there's no real argument that you need the entire database to do that kind of analysis. And the court seems to have considered this very briefly and said, well, but then you'd lose the historical data. So they really do need the whole database. What that means, of course, is that uh, most of the carriers keep records of, of calls for uh, the numbers on their network for about two years, in some cases even more. Uh, but some of them don't keep them forever. Well, the problem here is, of course, that it's always going to be the case that any record that isn't retained forever, if you later decide that the person those records pertain to is a suspect in an investigation, that yes, you may not be able to get them if you didn't know at the time. But that doesn't make those records relevant now. 
Records don't become relevant now just because somewhere in there, there are records that you might decide are relevant in the future. Otherwise, you've just sort of made a nonsense of that term. So the logical leap here, or at least one logical leap, is between this idea of relevant now versus potentially relevant in the future. That is to say, we have reason to believe that this particular piece of data is going to be useful versus we have reason to believe that something in this massive database at some point in the future may be useful. That's right. Uh, and in the, in the opinion that was released from the FISA court, we see basically these two steps where there's an argument from necessity that says, well, we need the whole database to do the analysis. But that doesn't really pan out because, of course, they, they can do it in a more targeted way. And then the second step is, well, but you wouldn't necessarily have every record you might like to have that you uh, discover in the future uh, is, is something that you are interested in. Uh, and and it's sort of neither of those steps work alone. The court sort of bunches these two different arguments together uh, and, and doesn't seem to notice that neither of them actually works independently. Diane Feinstein here uh, writing in the, in the Wall Street Journal says, uh, working in combination, the call records database and other NSA programs have aided efforts by U.S. intelligence agencies to disrupt terrorism in the U.S. approximately a dozen times in recent years, according to the NSA. This summer, the agency disclosed that 54 terrorist events have been interrupted, including plots stopped and arrests made for support to terrorism. Thirteen events were in the U.S. homeland and nine involved U.S. persons or facilities overseas. Twenty-five were in Europe five in Africa and 11 in Asia. It's, it's amazing to me that this argument is still being made because it absolutely was exploded at a recent hearing when uh, Senator Patrick Leahy uh, really pressed uh, the uh, intelligence community on this and said, well, so you said 54 terror plots, but how many of those have to do with the call records program? And they said, well, actually, it was only about a dozen that had anything to do with the call records program. So you say the call records program plus others uh, disrupted 54 terror events. It's like saying birthday clowns and other programs uh, disrupted 54 events. Most of these were other programs. And so you've got a dozen where the call records program had any relevance at all. And then he pushes further and says, okay, but of those dozen where you used the call database, uh, how many cases was it actually really important? How many of those cases are, are, are places where you wouldn't have actually detected the person um, except for the call records database, and they admit it's one, maybe two, uh, and, and of course, you don't know what they would have detected otherwise uh, if they'd had to use other methods. And one of the problems here is that when you give the government incredibly broad surveillance authority, um, you don't find out what would have been possible if they'd had to work a little bit harder. Um, so, you know, yeah, it's true. If you don't require probable cause to search a home, um, you'll see a lot of searches happening before probable cause is established, but you don't know whether they could have actually found enough evidence by doing the investigative work to get a warrant. Uh, and the one case that we do know about where they say, well, we don't think we, we would have found this person but for the, uh, but for the call database wasn't actually a plot. In fact, a lot of these cases, once you scratch the surface, turn out not to be plots. It was someone donating money to al-Shabaab, the Somalian terror group, and absolutely find those people, prosecute them. But we're not really talking about plots in a lot of these cases. We're talking about something like funding. Um, 
It's also worth noting that, that Feinstein uh, trots out another argument we're hearing more of, which is, well, if only we'd had this before 9-11, uh, we would have identified one of the 9-11 hijackers, Khalid al-Midar. Um, and that might be right. But of course, there's a ton of government surveillance powers that have been expanded since 9-11 under the Patriot Act and other legislation. So uh, I don't know why you would focus on this particular one. A lot of those uh, might have made a difference. But in this case, it doesn't actually make any sense. What they're talking about is that Khalid al-Midar was in contact with a known al-Qaeda safe house in Yemen. And that was a phone line the NSA was tapping. Um, the problem is they didn't know where the calls were coming from. They assumed they were all also coming from overseas. Uh, and so if they had had some other way to know that, that it was someone in the U.S. calling that safe house, they would have gone after that person. Um, now, that may be the case. The problem here is that a domestic call database, a database of totally U.S. to U.S. phone calls would have not been any use there. At most, the much smaller database of international calls, calls from the U.S. to overseas might have been useful. Uh, but even that seems like overkill because if, again, you've got a list of numbers that you're interested in that you're looking for, why can't you go to the phone company and say, these are the numbers we're looking for. We want to be alerted when um, either historically in your records or prospectively looking forward, uh, someone in the U.S. calls that number or vice versa. There may be technical reasons. It's difficult for the phone companies to do that. Uh, but it seems like the solution then is to address whatever technical barriers might exist to doing, again, that more targeted kind of alert system with the phone companies instead of saying, well, there's a technical problem. Just give us all of the records. Is part of the the problem that the NSA is having with being challenged on possessing the entire database is just the fact that they wouldn't actually possess it? That is, if the phone company is holding on to these records and they can be uh, flagged whenever necessary is part of the problem that they're having. It's like, well, no, we just want it. Uh, you know, it, it's it's certainly easier for them. I think this is this is the problem with with the court not sort of pushing back on claims about necessity. Um, what they mean, I think, in a lot of these cases is uh, we have very sophisticated capabilities, so it is simpler in some sense if we can just run a search on a whole bunch of numbers at once internally with our database instead of going back with new orders. But again, if they had to do that, it seems like certainly a court that was willing to uh, grant such a broad demand for all American phone records uh, could have found a way to streamline that process and say, for instance, um, we're going to give an order that's a little bit open-ended and assume that as you get back results, these are all the numbers in contact with your suspicious number. Um, you can also sort of send that back both from one phone company and across phone companies to say, okay, this order is also good for the numbers in direct contact with the person you're suspicious about. Um, you know, there are ways to do this without having to necessarily go and have a new hearing every single time if you know you're going to want to do chaining across a couple of hops. And many of those those authorities already exist, don't they? Absolutely. I mean, you know, these are not authorities that, that uh, criminal investigators have uh, proven to need in their efforts to track down uh, sophisticated domestic 
criminals. Now, there are reasons when you're talking about terror groups that may be dealing internationally, although the same is true of narcotics rings, um, while you may need slightly more powerful tools. But nothing on the scale they're talking about seems, uh, seems to be necessary at all. I will note, what we know about now, what they're claiming is the only way they're really using this database now, involves known numbers. There are some references in some of the documents the government was forced to release to other kinds of automated tools um, that don't seem to work in quite the same way. Uh, there's one that looks a lot to me like uh, a tool for fingerprinting what are called burner phones, prepaid phones that are sort of thrown away and used by um, either criminal rings or terror cells to talk to each other and then you draw out the phone and, and get a new batch. Um, and it sounds like that kind of tool would actually need to sort of scan through everything um, to see what fits the pattern they're looking for. We want to find a phone that went up on a, a particular date and uh, called exactly seven or eight other phones, that kind of thing. Um, you might need to sift through very quickly a whole lot of unknown phones to do that. But as far as we know, that kind of tool has been discontinued. We also know actually because um, Ron Wyden said so right here at Cato uh, at a recent conference we did was, you know, this is exactly what they were saying about a bulk email metadata program that ran from, well, until until 2011, um, at, where they were collecting all the sort of uh, email headers from international communications of basically all Americans again. And exactly the same thing happened there. In that case, uh, the NSA swore again and again this was absolutely essential, absolutely essential, necessary. That was the argument the, co the court apparently bought. And finally, under pressure from some skeptical uh, senators on the Intelligence Committee, they kind of had to admit that they weren't really getting anything useful from this. They couldn't get in a bunch of other ways. And so they had to abandon it. And so then the question is, well, if they keep saying it's necessary, as they have for a lot of programs uh, created in the name of the war on terror, and then when you scratch the surface, it turns out, well, they're not that useful after all. Um, maybe it's time to stop granting them these incredible powers, just taking their word for it, that they need them. Julian Sanchez is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. You can read more of his work at Cato.org.